0: As we continue in the long series in the Gospel of Luke, I'm going to ask, if you would, to go ahead and get your Bibles, whatever version that may be, or whatever format that might be, and uh, turn to Luke's Gospel, Chapter 23, where we'll be resuming in our message and uh, messages as we are drawing further and further along in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also... In the in that time period that we know in the in the, the traditions of the church as that passion week the last week of Jesus's earthly life as he's drawn closer and closer to the cross and and, and the intensity of the emotions there in Jerusalem around the the celebration of the Passover are are, are gradually escalating you can almost sense that there's There's serious spiritual warfare going on. And I dare say if we had spiritual goggles, kind of like those night vision goggles that enable you to see things at night that you can't see with the naked eye. You know, if a person were able to to, to stand at a high pinnacle in Jerusalem and look down through spiritual goggles, I believe that you would see the increasing activity of the forces of evil who are bent to deter the plan of god that wonderful mission of redemption that jesus is on we know that in john's gospel as jesus is is, uh introducing the lord's supper that satan himself actively moved in literally into the life of one of jesus's disciples judas so so he saw an opportunity and moved there but i can't believe that that he is the only one. I believe there was a, a a clarion call going out across the universe. All demons on hand, report to Jerusalem. Bombard every soul, every mind, every emotion. We've got to disrupt this ministry, this mission of the Christ. And I believe what we see transpiring in the hearts of these religious leaders, if you can call that apostate group of Jewish leaders leaders. I think some of the mindset that they had the, the hatred and animosity that they, they had towards Christ I think it was demonically engineered. you know Jesus in John's Gospel chapter 8 he didn't he didn't pull any punches when it came to the Jewish leaders you know they asked they, they accused him of having a demon he turned to, he turned the coin on them and says, hey listen, you can't even know the truth. Because your father, the devil, he's the father of lies. So you see, Jesus recognized the activity of demonic activities in Satan in the lives of his adversaries at that point. So I'm just saying, I like to paint visual images of what's going on. Demons are moving freely and furiously to to maneuver and to manipulate the people all to disrupt God's plan of redemption. Listen, Satan's had a vital interest in that from the fall of mankind in the garden. And he's not going to rest, ladies and gentlemen, until that great angel of God grabs him by his pointed tail and casts him down into the fires of hell once and for all, as we see in Revelation. But I'm not going to get off into prophecy. I just want to focus our attention now this morning on chapter 23. We'll begin looking at verses uh, Thirteen and on, but before we do, you know, I was thinking about what we'll see transpiring in these passages in verses uh, thirteen through twenty-five this morning, and and I was thinking about as Americans we know full well and by firsthand the dangers of mob uh, mobs of people being whipped up into madman frenzy protest such as the explosive Black Lives Matter movement that followed the tragic death of of George Floyd on May the 25th of 2020. We saw, we saw that on our television screens unfolding before us. And then more recently at the US Capitol, the riots that transpired there on January the 6th, 2021. Listen, one thing both stormy episodes revealed to the watching public is that riotous mobs get out of control fast and often prove to be dangerous destructive, and even sometimes tragically deadly. And in our scripture text this morning, as we look here in chapter 23 of Luke, it's both fascinating and yet it's heartbreaking to see the same basic crowd of Jewish citizens assembled in Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago to celebrate the Passover, to see this same crowd transformed from a joyful and hopeful chorus of people celebrating the entrance into Jerusalem of the long awaited and their perceived Messiah, Jesus Christ, complete with their shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, as Luke recorded in chapter 19. And now, just a few days later, just a few days later, We see in this same crowd gathered at the court of Pontius Pilate, filled with animosity and hate towards the same Jesus, shouting to the tops of their lungs, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Wow, this morning as you walk with me through this text, in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 23, I hope we'll gain some insights into how this tragic transformation came about in that group of people. In your guide that I've given you there, you'll find that you have other gospel accounts of this reflected in the uh, other gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John. We won't be able to extensively visit all of those. Certainly not. But just want you to go back and do some reading yourself. You want to get... It's beautiful, it's like a collage. When you start putting the bits and pieces from the different perspectives of the different gospel writers, you get the full picture. One gospel writer doesn't give it all. And that's why I give you those references so so that you can, as Paul Harvey, the radio commentator used to say, get the rest of the story. So the first thing I want us to look at, we focus upon Pilate because he's been thrust into the spotlight of this dramatic, you know, mock kangaroo trial of the son of God. And so I want us to focus upon what I entitled was the, the sentence of an unjust judge. If, if ever there was one, Pontius Pilate was that. Now just to understand, and I'm not, I don't have time to go into a lot of detail, but if you were to, to be trying to assess Pontius Pilate's career at this point, you might say that Pontius Pilate who was over the region of Judah and Jerusalem in that area. You might say that his political career could be described as maybe one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. But he had made so many blunders with Rome, with the Jewish people, uh, you know, exacting, taking money out of the temple tax to pay for a public water system and, 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 and putting up images of, of Caesar in the temple area and the Jews going crazy because that's idolatry. I mean, just, there's things that were just not wise. So he's in a tenuous position here and he knows that probably all it takes is one more blunder and the word gets to Rome and he's out of there. So just understand the position that he's in and yet he's dealing with a very tough situation and it's escalating and, and so we see here, I thought it was interesting, as you look at chapter three, verse thirteen, that twenty three verse thirteen, that Luke introduces another player in the drama. Up to this point, we of course have Christ. We have the Lord. We have we have the Jewish Sanhedrin the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and that group. We have the priest, the high priest, Caiaphas and Annas. So we, we have all of those. We even have you know, King Herod thrown in at one point when Jesus was taken to go before him because Pilate was trying to pawn it off on, on Herod. But I think it's interesting that in verse 13, it says, Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and you'll notice he introduces another element, the people, the, the group, the, 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 the average citizens. Up to this point, it's been pretty much a religious trial conducted by religious leaders exclusively with a few bystanders, but for the most part. But now you'll notice that he, he has called together in addition to the religious leaders, he's calling together the people. That will be a key factor in the development of the story as we move forward. The people become a force to be reckoned with, even more so that you might say than the high priest himself. See, and the reason that Pilate does that, number one, he wants to make his intentions public. He knows that the religious leaders, he's getting nowhere with the religious leaders. They are not budging. Even though he's described earlier, as Tim was reading from last week's message, He's already, he's already declared, this This man, that you bring him before me? He's innocent. And they wouldn't budge. Oh no, oh no. So I believe why what, what Pilate is doing now is he's trying to make this a public affair, get the people involved so that he can make it a, 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 a matter of the general population in Jerusalem so as to put pressure on the religious leaders. If he could turn the people against the religious leaders, then that would take a lot of heat off of him. And so I think what he's trying to do is elicit sympathy from the masses. You say, well, how's that possible? You see, Pilate's not dumb. Maybe not smart, but he's not totally dumb because he remembers. You know how Jesus in in Luke's gospel, chapter four, verse 15, it talked about Jesus teaching in the synagogues and, and the people gloried at his teaching. As we saw, as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, time after time after time, the multitudes marveled at, at, at his power, his spiritual power, his, his, the power over the elements. And, and so Jesus, as he's working miracles, as he's feeding thousands of people from meager lunches and doing miracles that the people are enjoying, as he's healing people of diseases that never have been healed from before, leprosy and blindness and deafness and lameness oh listen as he's raising the dead he's becoming intensely powerful and popular and pilot knows that and he's thinking if i bring this man up before the people that that so adore him oh listen pilot was there on the scene there in Luke's Gospel, chapter nineteen, verses thirty-seven and thirty-eight, the incident I just referred to, when Jesus came into what we into Jerusalem, on what, in what we call the triumphal entry. Listen, Pilate was there. He heard the multitudes as they were waving the palm branches and singing praises and Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, listen, Pilate, Pilate was banking on the popularity of Jesus and hoping to elicit sympathy that would turn the tide, that would cause the pressure to be on the religious leaders. Of course, that plan would backfire on him. (laughs) Pilate declares the Lord's innocence over and over. It's not just a one-time declaration by this secular leader who was so steeped in his own pride and ego Listen, he he repeatedly made that that point, even in the same chapter of Luke's gospel, chapter 23, verse 4. Look look back there. Pilate said to the chief priest and crowd, I find no fault in this man. And he made that point again in that same chapter. And we'll see that down in 22, verse 22, where again he echoes, I have found no reason for death in him. He's innocent. And so, repeatedly, Paul is decla- I mean, Pilate is declaring the innocence of Jesus. But then also, Luke is emphasizing not only is Pilate repeatedly saying Jesus is innocent, but he's even stressing the thoroughness with which Pilate is making this kind of a, a declaration, this kind of a verdict sentence. He's stressing the thoroughness. If you look at verse 23, I mean, verse uh, 14 there, Luke 23, verse 14. And, and he said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people and indeed have examined him in your presence. I find no fault in this man concerning those things of which you have accused him. When Pilate says, I have examined him. Luke uses that Greek word that is actually a technical legal term that implies careful legal scrutiny. He's making his decision not based on hearsay. It's not just some flippant impression that he has. I don't even think it was his wife coming to him and saying, hey, have nothing to do with this man. I had a bad dream. No, I think it was, I believe Pilate had looked at the facts. He knew the motive of the religious leaders was all envy over Jesus. They repeat that. And so there was, so he's looking at this as a technically legal decision, and he says, I have examined him. And as if that were not good enough. In verse 15, he says, No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed. Nothing worthy of death has been done by him. So you see, Pilate's making a case for himself. He's saying, listen, I, I, I've repeatedly looked at this man. There's no no evidence of, of, of guilt on that I can see. He's innocent, and I've done it thoroughly. I've examined him thoroughly, and listen, even to, to pacify you, I've sent him up to Herod over the region of Galilee. And, of course, Jesus wouldn't even speak to Herod, though Herod thoroughly wanted to see Jesus do some miracles and that type of thing. And then after Herod and his soldiers mistreated Jesus, had their fun with him, they sent him back to Pilate. Folks, the implication is Herod was a man who was much more knowledgeable in Jewish law and in Jewish customs than Pilate. Pilate is in essence saying, listen, I sent him to the expert. He examined him and guess what? He's back here. If Herod had found one shred of true evidence to convict Jesus on the things that you're accusing him, he would have never come back to Jerusalem. Not not Herod Antipas being the kind of man he was, he would have dealt with him there. And that would have been the end of the deal. So, I've even sent him to Herod, and Herod didn't even condemn him. So, you see, Pilate is desperately trying to prove his case, to make his case for the innocence of Christ. And you would think, with all of that, and not only that, but he desperately, you're talking about desperation. He even goes so far in verse 16, and then again in verse 22. He says, look, I'll I tell you what. Even though he's innocent, I will therefore chastise him. Even though I've declared him three times innocent, if it'll make you happy, we'll beat him and then we'll let him go. Thinking they'll say, all right, well, that'll, that'll teach him. If he gets a good beating. He won't show back up. That'll take care of that. Not, not so. And so Pilate Maybe if I can use that expression, pilots in a pickle. And things about to go from bad to worse. Because he realizes he's not getting far, not getting far at all. Look with me in verse 17. Because we see that not only do we have the sentence of an unjust judge, but we have the insistence of a murderous mob. Now enter the people. Same people that praised his name, saying hallelujah, hosanna, hosanna. Watch and be horrified. Now you'll notice in your English Standard versions that there is no verse 17. Don't send your Bible back. There's no misprint there. It's simply the fact that verse 17 is not in the oldest Greek manuscripts of Luke's gospel, and, and so therefore it's not in your ESV. Those right here in my King, New King James Version. If you want to trade yours in, no, I'm just kidding.
1: But it is interesting
0: that, that the mention of the tradition of, of, of releasing a prisoner is mentioned in the transcripts in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verse seven, uh, 15, and then the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 16. It's just not in Luke's Gospel, and hence not in your translation if that's, the reason, if that's the case for you. But there was a tradition, a practice, of releasing a prisoner to show goodwill at the time of Passover, to, to, to just demonstrate goodwill towards the people in general that the leader had the option of, of releasing a prisoner back to the people. And of course, this too would backfire on Pilate as he's standing down before the people because he's thinking, surely, they'll let them choose to let Jesus go. This, their, the, his popularity and their, their, their compassion, they will surely want to let him go. And so now we find this murderous mob beginning to yield to the evil influences of their leaders. And this is how easily people are swayed in times like this. So when Pilate is offering to declare Jesus innocent and to release him, listen to the people now. And they all cried out at once saying, away with this man. And released to us, Barabbas, out of the blue. Who's Barabbas? Was it an innocent Jewish um, philanthropist or, or, or kind-hearted person that that had a run-in with Rome and and and, and, and innocent and sitting in, in prison somewhere? No, no. You, you, as you move in the text, you'll find that Barabbas was a a very evil person, very undeserving of, of being released. And so let's, let's look there in verse 17, for it was necessary for him to release one to them all at the feast. And they all cried out at once saying, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for certain insurrection made in the city and for murder. Now, you're thinking, wait a minute. And Pilate's probably just caught totally off guard when suddenly the people are saying at the offer of releasing one of the prisoners, i.e. Jesus, who he's been declared three times now by Pilate and even by Herod to be innocent. He's an obvious choice. He's the very one that certainly would deserve to be released on this day. And the people are saying, no, a Get rid of him, but instead give us Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the murderer, the one who has already been condemned to be crucified. There's a cross waiting on Barabbas. Could it be the cross that Christ died on? Would have been the very one that they would have hung, Barabbas' on, and yet the people are crying out in protests. Away with Jesus. Give us, grab us. There's something that we have to understand in the dynamic that goes on between the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people. The average Jew was thoroughly intimidated by their religious leaders. The average Jew was thoroughly intimidated by their religious leaders. We see that in John's Gospel, chapter nine. You don't have to go back and turn back there. You'll, you'll remember the story. When Jesus healed the blind man who had been blind from birth and, they, and Jesus was asking him about who healed him and, he, and the man told, the, I mean, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, the, the Jewish leaders were asking the blind man, who healed you? And he said, Jesus. They don't want to hear that. They, so they, they want to discredit him. They want to say, well, he really wasn't blind from birth. So they go get his parents. They bring his parents in. And they start quizzing his parents. Number one, is this really your boy? Yes, this is our son. Was he really blind from birth? Yes, he was really blind from birth. Well, then who is it that healed him? Who is it that made this miracle happen? Now the parents begin to start back stepping for a reason. Listen to what John said in John chapter nine, verse 22. This is how intimidated these, this Jewish couple was Of their religious leaders. It says. His parents said these things. Because they feared the Jews. The leaders. For the Jews agreed that. If anyone confessed that he was Christ. Speaking of Jesus. They would be put out of the synagogue. They would be excommunicated. From the Jewish faith. And that's as much as being cast out of society. So you see the intimidation that they have over the people there as, as the Jewish leaders are quizzing the, the parents of this blind man and saying, who is it that healed this man? How did this happen? And, and they're basically, you know, they, they're saying, well, uh, uh, you, our son is of age. You can ask him. We don't know <laughs> They don't want any association with Jesus for fear of the Jewish leaders. Now keep that in mind as all the Jewish leaders are infiltrating the crowd. And they're letting the people know. They're there and the people have heard their accusations against Jesus. The people know of their dislike for Jesus. Not dislike, their hatred for Jesus. And so they're moving in the midst of the crowd and beginning to influence the people. The same people that once praised him under the intimidating influence of their religious leaders, their their tune is going to change very rapidly. And the multitude is also incited by the emotions and the example of the leaders. Let me get you to turn, or or you can listen. I'm going to turn back, and it's in your, your guide there, in Matthew chapter 27, in verse 20. Just to give you an idea, Luke didn't pick up on this, but Matthew sure does. This is how directly involved the leaders were. Verse 20, chapter 27 of Matthew. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. I'll never forget watching, uh, I believe it was the Jesus movie. And they were, it was that scene where Jesus was on trial and the mobs were, were there. And they had been crying out for Barabbas and away with Jesus. And, and, and Pilate is asking, you know, who, who should I release? And, and in that scene, I'll never forget, different ones of the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, they were they were working the crowd. They said, you know, ask for Barabbas, ask for Barabbas. Look me in the eye, I'll, I'll be watching you. And sure enough, a heavily intimidated and, and no doubt, as I mentioned before, spiritual forces are at work. You don't know the demons that have access to the hearts and the minds of the people who are saying, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And so the multitude whipped up into a frenzy of hate and despite, or oh, spite towards Jesus. And so the multitude's beginning to yield now, look at old Pilate at this time. Just imagine, as if it wasn't hard enough for him to have the bullheaded and cantankerous Sanhedrin bearing down on him and making threats left and right. Maybe even saying, Pilate, we uh, think about sending a letter to Caesar. <laughs> we got a delegation ready to head towards Rome, old boy. He's got that bearing down on him. His wife is coming to him secretly and saying, listen, don't have anything to do with this innocent man. It's trouble for you. I've dreamed about him. And now he's got a crowd, a multitude that is increasingly becoming out of control and they're screaming out to him. Crucify him, crucify him. So you can almost see the dilemma going on. In verse 20, Pilate therefore wishing to release Jesus again called out to them and they shouted, the people, the people, they they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why? What evil has he done? I found no reason for death in him. Uh, And again, makes the offer, if it'll help you, I'll, I'll be happy to whip him. And let him go. But they were insistent, verse 23. They were insistent, demanding with a loud voice that he be crucified, and the voices of these men and of the chief priests. So you get the mix. And the priests were guilty. They were right there in the in the thick of things, misleading the people. Back in verse 14, when Pilate was telling the, the, the religious leaders, the, the, the chief priests and scribes and rulers, you know, he was saying you know, that, that this Jesus was, was mis- they were accusing Jesus of misleading the people. I thought it was interesting in the new international version, they were accusing Jesus, literally, it says, of inciting the people to rebellion. That's what they were accusing Jesus of. He was inciting the people to rebellion. I had to stop and scratch my head when I read that translation and those words. I said, wait a minute. What's wrong with this picture? They are guilty of the very thing that they're going to Pilate to accuse Jesus of. That he's inciting the people to rebellion. And what are they doing? Out there in the midst of the crowd, the mob, they're inciting the people to rebellion, to the point of rebellion. And unknowingly, the crowd, the mob, they incriminate themselves in what they're doing. Let me take, take you back to Matthew Matthew's gospel. Because again, Matthew gives us glimpses into this in chapter 27. As, as he's describing there, in verse twenty-four, Matthew twenty-seven, verse twenty-four, it's, it's the people in their in their heated emotions, in, in the frenzy of, of of all the furor that's going on around. In verse twenty-four of chapter twenty-seven in Matthew's gospel it says, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, no kidding. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. As if that was gonna solve things. You see to it, he's turning the matter over to the people as if I don't have any control anymore. But listen, you talk about chilling, listen to the response of the people. There in Matthew 27 verse 25, and all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and our children. Just crucify him, we'll take the blame. Not only us, our children will bear the blame. You know, when Peter was preaching that powerful message in Pentecost, under the powerful inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's standing there. This is all after the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. And this is when the Holy Spirit has been poured out on that early church. And he's standing out there in the temple complex, looking into the eyes of the same murderous crowd, Jewish leaders and people together. And there in that message, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 2, Verse 23, Peter, Simon Peter, the very one that denied Jesus three times. He said, Him, speaking of Jesus, being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you, Peter pulls no punches. He's looking dead into the face and the eyes of the very ones that were screaming, crucifying, His blood be on us, His blood be on our children. Guess what? Peter's delivering. And he's looking them straight in their eyes under the power of the Spirit of God and says, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Peter's reminding the crowd at that point, oh, listen, you can blame Pilate all you want to. You can blame the Roman soldiers all you want to. But the blood of Jesus is on your hands. It was your mouths that were crying out, to that pagan governor, crucify him, crucify him. And I'm sure that message came home. And finally, I want you to see pitifully the acquiescence of a poor leader. In my lifetime, I've seen some wonderful, godly, strong, qualified leaders, and I thank God for them. They're coming fewer and farther between nowadays. In fact, you have to look pretty hard to find a real, true, principled, strong leader. But they're still out there. Not Pilate, though, because he's caving. Pilate commits several glaring acts of injustice just to show his weakness. Going back to Luke. Chapter 23. Let me direct your attention to verse 24. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested and he released them to them, the one they requested, Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the murderer, who for insurrection and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus, not to the ruling of justice, Not to the will of God, but he released it, Jesus, to the will of the people. As if to say, here he is. And yet, even before, even before he sent him to be crucified, Pilate does the unthinkable, allows the unthinkable to take place. You'd think it'd be bad enough to send somebody to the most brutal and, and, and agonizing form of, of execution crucifixion but when you when you look at the other gospel writers accounts that's why it's good to look at the whole picture I, I believe I believe that Luke somehow tends to airbrush the treatment of Jesus prior to crucifixion but when you go back because in Luke's gospel, each time, Pilate has used the expression, I'll, I'll, I'll chastise him, I'll punish him. Folks, that's just the tip of the iceberg as to what he had fully in mind and what our Lord would endure as a result. Because in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 26, in the Gospel of Mark, verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 15, it says, he had Jesus scourged. Pilate, Luke says, chastise, punish. Mark and Matthew and John says, hope come out. That's like comparing the teacher taking a ruler and cracking you on the hand for doing something or you being sent to the principal's office and you see hanging on the wall a big thick piece of oak wood that is called the attitude adjuster not that I had experience with it but I heard it's extremely painful now know what our Lord would be experiencing when the other Gospels are describing in detail a scourge folks listen Historical experts described scur- scourging as one of the most brutal and barbaric forms of beating a prisoner. The executioner of the scourge would have a, a whip that I wouldn't handle with leather straps, straps coming off of it. Sometimes it would be as many as nine. and That's why it was called the cat of nine tails. A wood grip that he could hold tightly in his hand. At the end of each one of those leather straps with pieces and fragments of bone and metal. This this device was not intended to punish and chastise. Oh no, no. This, this was a torturous whip that was specifically designed not to leave wells, but to tear flesh. And historians tell us that the victims would be tied a hand stretched up high to a pole where the backs would be taut. And a brutal Roman soldier, trained for this, would let in on him as this whip scourged around and began to tear away the flesh. And it would tear away the flesh from ligaments and tear away from tendons. And even in some extreme cases, after being scourged, the prisoners internal organs would be exposed. This is how brutal this thing is. And John tells us in this, his account, that this is what Jesus was exposed to. Listen to John chapter 19, verse 1. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Pilate didn't do it. Pilate ordered it to be done. And the soldiers, this is after he's been scourged, I can't even imagine. You saw the movie The Passion. I believe you saw some Hollywood version of that. I can't even imagine anybody. Historians tell us that many people who were scourged never lived. That did a man right there. But our Lord, after he scourged, John says in chapter 19, verse 2, the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. If you walk through our hallway, going to the fellowship hall, you go through the missions exhibits and there's a crown thorn that was crafted by a native of kenya from their achaea tree that has those thorns which would have been the type of tree that they were used in making a crown for jesus the thorns are that long Listen, they just sit that on jesus's head mocking him as king listen they twisted it down upon his brow crushing it into his skull, and blood flowed profusely. And they put, it, they put on a purple robe, John says, so as to mock him. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. After, he's been scourged. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Duh. You see what Pilate's doing? He's thinking, surely these rascals, when they see this man so absolutely tortured and brutally treated, surely there will be some sympathy in their heart. And so finally, in all the chaos, I know you're probably thinking, Is there anything uplifting? Yeah, there is. There is. In all the chaos, God's divine plan is fully, totally fulfilled. Nothing is happening that is out of God's control. I know verse 25 talked about he turned Jesus, delivered Jesus to their will. They think they've got control. They think that their will is being done. But in the eternal scheme of things, in eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit agreed that this would all have to transpire. And and Jesus had even told his own disciples in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. You may recall when that message was preached, In chapter 18, Luke 18, verse 31. It says, and he took the 12 aside and said to them, this is before his arrest. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit on. Check, check, check. And they will scourge him, check and put him to death. And the third day he will rise again. Oh, listen, Pilate thought he was releasing Christ to the will of the people. All he was doing was playing along with the providential plan of God. And you know, all through Jesus's prayer in Gethsemane there in chapter 18, Jesus was praying to the Father no one in all of this was waiting. There was one thing Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. God's will was being done. Jesus was not a victim of ruthless rulers. He was not a victim of apostate Jewish leaders. He was not a victim of riotous mobs, but he's Messiah. And he's perfectly fulfilling his mission that would accomplish the redemption of your sins and my sins. Everything he endured, he endured out of his deep divine love for you and me, realizing that we could never pay the price for our sins. Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ once suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And as I close, having heard that brief revelation of the divine love and grace of God, who would subject his only begotten son to such torturous treatment at the hands of such evil people that he might accomplish his mission to provide a way that our sins might be forgiven, that we might have eternal life, that we might be restored into fellowship with Almighty God. I ask you, from my heart, have you come to that point? Have you come to realize by conviction of the Spirit of God that you are a sinner? The Scripture says in Romans 3.23, all sin becomes short of the glory of God. Have you come to that point in your life? And if so... Have you confessed your sins to the Lord? Confessed the fact that you are a sinner? And if so, have you repented of your sins? Have you determined that you're turning your back on sin for ways, habits, notions, ideas, relationships? Are you turning your back on sin? And are you turning to Christ Jesus and Him alone? No one else. No one else in all of eternity died for your sins but Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And have you put your full trust in Him as your Savior and as your Lord? And if you have, have you committed to follow Him, faithfully and obediently, practicing the principles of His divine Word in your life as a disciple? If you haven't, dear friend, I hope this rendition from Luke's Gospel of what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, endured willingly, willingly. At no point do you find Jesus protesting and trying to excuse himself and get out of it. Oh no, he willingly endured everything that was described to you, that you and I might have salvation. I pray that God will move in your heart to bring you to that decision that you too might share in the wonderful, confident assurance and security of knowing that your sins are forgiven, that you're saved by the blood of Christ. You've been adopted into the family of God and no matter what happens in this world, we have a home, an eternal home that he has prepared for us, waiting for us where we'll spend eternity with him in the presence of God. Let's pray, Lord, thank you Thank you that you have spoken so clearly through your word, not just through Luke's gospel, but Matthew, Mark, John. Lord, I pray that the truths of this lesson will speak loudly into the hearts of every one of us. I pray that Christians will be encouraged in their faith and endeared in their love to you. I pray that anyone who has yet to take that step of faith Lord, by the drawing of your Holy Spirit will be drawn to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ today before it's eternally too late. And so, Lord, we just lift this up to you. Have your will, have your way in all things. We love you, Lord. We thank you for loving us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.